0: Morning, West Bowles. Where's Ryan? (laughs) Mullet man. (laughs) Billy Ray. When I pulled up this morning and I saw that suit, I got out of my car and tossed him my keys. I thought he was a valet. (laughs) Asked him for a latte and he just looked at me. So, anyway, (laughs) it's good. By the way, uh, Ryan is uh, ordained, he went to youcanbeareverend.com, he paid the $13 fee. Is it true? There he is, there he is. (laughs) It's true. All you got to have is an inkjet printer and put that diploma right up on your wall. So don't tell me this guy doesn't have some credentials behind him. I love you, Ryan. (laughs) Lose the suit though. A couple weeks ago, I made the mistake of really taking a, kind of assessing the damages that the winter uh, wrought on my house, as you may be doing this time of year, now that it's beautiful and, you know, you get that idea of, let's go to Home Depot and fix everything. And I was uh, looking at some of the trim on the exterior of my house around the windows, and I noticed it just seemed like it needed a touch-up. So you've done this before. You take some paint out, and you decide to do a little section of it. And then when it dries, what do you notice? The rest of it needs work, and then you end up doing the whole house, and you spend your whole summer um, on a ladder. Um, it's no wonder you get these door hangers from salespeople. The n- number one door hanger I get, house painting. You relate to that? Okay, you don't. Um, I do. I get a lot of flyers saying, hey, we can paint your house, and we're the best in town, um, because the things fade, don't they? Things wear out. Things get dull. They lose their lustle- luster. They lose their shine. What I want to talk about today is that the same is true the fading effect is same is the same for the old covenant. In fact, in our text today which is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul emphasizes how Christians who are being transformed through the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit display the glory of God in a way that Moses and the prophets could have only dreamed about. And we don't always oftentimes understand that. The glory that we now express being the vessels of God's spirit pales in comparison to the glory that was expressed through Moses and the prophets. But I want to take a step back. If you have your Bibles, I want us to go to the chapter prior to 2 Corinthians 3, which is going to be our main text today. But I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you'll look there, if you have your Bible. Verse 16. And in verse 16, he says something that has always caught my attention, especially being in Christian ministry and leadership roles. He says in the second part of 2 Corinthians 2.16, Who is equal to such a task? Anybody who has attempted to lead or has attempted to be involved in the messiness that is the Christian life has had to ask themselves that question. Who is adequate? Who is competent for this task? It says in the NIV, who is equal to such a task? And the question is, what tasks is he talking about? Well, being a minister of the New Covenant. And by the way, In case you don't know, all of us are ministers of the New Covenant. Are you aware of that? It's not just the hired people. It's every one of us who have the Spirit of God living in them. We are all ministers of the New Covenant. And that involves preaching the gospel, teaching, and equipping believers, and confronting the obstacles that that hinder growth to the church. And the obstacles are many. All you have to do is read Paul's letters, and you understand that. There was an obstacle that he dealt with constantly, which was false teachers. The other was unrepentant believers. So being a minister of the New Covenant involves all these things. No wonder Paul says, who's adequate? Who's adequate to deal with the challenges of addressing the human soul? Because they can be overwhelming. Paul doesn't consider himself sufficient. Paul, the great apostle, does not consider himself efficient for the task of preaching and teaching the word of God and bringing about the transformation of human hearts that follows. Only Christ is significant and sufficient, or excuse me, sufficient for that task. Now, if you'll take a look at chapter 3, which is the text we'll be in today, look at the end of chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We, and we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into the image, into His image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. So here Paul goes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 and says, who is adequate? Who is sufficient for this task? And then he jumps to 2 Corinthians 3 and he says, but we are being transformed into the very image of God through the ever-increasing glory through his spirit. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. I can't, but he can, and he lives in me. Isn't that the challenge? It's always aligning ourselves with the truth of who God is. That I know I am insufficient. Anybody who leads, anybody who works with people in any capacity, you ask yourself the very same question that Paul did. Who is adequate? Who is sufficient? Who is competent for these things? And considering the church he was writing to, he had every reason to experience that sense of incompetence and inadequacy for such a task, given the unique challenges that the church in Corinth presented. 1 Corinthians 13, if you recall. A lot of people read this at, um, at weddings. If we can put the next slide up, please. Um, yeah, you read, isn't it beautiful? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all, believes all. Love never fails. It's a beautiful verse to read at weddings. But do you understand the two v- chapters that it's sandwiched in between? Paul is dealing with the amazing gifting spiritual gifting of the Corinthians. But they were misusing and abusing the gifts. And so he has to put on the brakes in chapter 13 because he stops talking about tongues. He's about to go into, or excuse me, the gift of knowledge or prophecy. Then he goes into talking about the gifts of tongues in in chapter 14. But smack in the middle of chapter, in chapter 13, what does he do? He stops and he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have what? Love, you might as well sit down and keep your mouth shut. In other words, people were coming into the assembly in the Corinthian church and they were hearing people babbling. And nobody was interpreting. And so Paul is basically saying, if no one is there to provide an interpretation in which to edify the body in order to give a word of blessing that can be understood, sit down. It looks like confusion. Aren't they going to think you're mad? He says, just keep quiet. So we have 1 Corinthians 13. Right in the middle of that, because of their amazing gifting, he said, you've got to be ministering in love and not trying to one-up each other because you have all this gifting. That was just part of the problem. But then as you go through 1 Corinthians, the first letter, it it gets worse. Um, We have a list here. People aligning themselves with specific teachers. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. A cult of personality. And isn't this a danger that we have? a loyalty to a personality, a loyalty to a name. Now, there's nothing wrong with having favorites, but God never intended for us to follow a person. People lead us. They are the conduit to following Christ, but they are not the person that we worship. And so people were having these factions among themselves. Paul said himself, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys because you would have been loyal to me. You would have figured, I got baptized by Paul. Some kind of a badge of, of honor. There was jealousy and quarreling. Among them, We never have that in the church, do we? I certainly hope we don't have incest, but that's on the list. Can you imagine having to jump into that one? Christians taking Christians to court. I don't think I can work this out with you because I'm just too stubborn, so I'm going to take it before a pagan judge and let him solve it. What a great testimony that is to the world, isn't it? We can't solve our own issues amongst ourselves. Divorce and remarriage. This was a challenge because you had... Husbands and wives, one or the other becoming a Christian, the other remaining in paganism. So what does the Christian wife do whose husband becomes a, or is, does not convert to Christianity? What does she do? Paul has to address that, the, the laws, and the, well, not the laws, but the, the principles of, of what do you do when you have an unequally yoked family situation? People getting drunk on the wine from the Lord's table. Now, fortunately, you don't serve wine here because you'd have people creeping in early before the service and chugging it down. And then they'd be speaking in tongues, for goodness sakes. (laughs) No, not really. My parents are uh, orthodox, which is really a mind-bender for me. And before, you know, every time, when you're done with the elements, it's wine. They serve real wine there. And it's so hilarious. I went to a Christmas Eve service, and you got the priest. They cannot let the wine sit. It's got to be consumed. So what do you think the priest does after the service? I could see it through a door, because I'm thinking, what are these guys doing? He's chugging the wine. They never taught us that in seminary. (laughs) But people getting drunk on and they were eating all the food. I think they kind of missed the point. Do this in remembrance of me. No, I don't think they were doing that. Offending immature believers by eating meat that was once used in temple sacrifice. This is not something we deal with today. But what if somebody sees you out to dinner and you're having a beer? What about cutting your grass on a Sunday? This used to be a big thing when, when I was growing up. Oh, my gosh, you don't do that. You remember the Sabbath, you keep it holy. What does that mean? Well, you remember the Sabbath. You remember Christ. You use that time to focus on him. But we've taken it to the nth degree. But we have to be sensitive to the weaker brother, the person who is going to be offended because we tend to have a freedom that they don't. We may tend to say, I have a beer, that's fine. Wine, no problem. But what about the person who may may stumble because of that? What do we do? Paul had to address all these different things. Now, on top of that, 2 Corinthians is not the second letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. There was another letter that was written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's a letter that we do not have today. It was called, he called it the sorrowful letter. And it was a letter that caused Paul and the church much grief because there was apparently an individual, a person in the church, who was creating a tremendous amount of damage. And so the second letter we don't have today. We don't know where, what happened to it. It wasn't meant for us to have in, in the canon of Scripture. But it was addressing a person who harmed a lot of people, fortunately was disciplined, stuck around in order to experience church discipline, and then went on to be restored. So on top of all the issues that we just listed in 1 Corinthians, we had the sorrowful letter dealing with an individual who, could not be, who was not willing to place himself under the control of the Spirit. Finally, repented, was restored, And now we have the second letter to the Corinthians. Now, Paul understood what I know I quickly forget. Perhaps you do too. That my soul, apart from being made alive in Christ, is dead, blind, ignorant, envious, impulsive, jealous, angry. Can you add a few more adjectives there? That's me, by the way. That's what I am apart from the indwelling spirit apart from walking according to the Spirit. That's what I am when I walk according to who I was prior to knowing Christ. That's who we are. But we're not that anymore. In fact, Spurgeon, when he was commenting on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, wrote this. Our sufficiency is of God. Let us practically enjoy this truth. And I just say amen to that. We are poor, leaking vessels. And the only way for us to keep full is to put our pitcher under the perpetual flow of boundless grace. Then despite its leakage, the cup will always be full to the brim. You know, that's all I am is a cracked pot. And so are you, so don't laugh. No, just am just kidding. We, have, we leak, don't we? We have to continually receive the, the pouring in of the Spirit of God. And that's something, again, that Moses and the prophets could have never even imagined. Let's take a look at chapter 3. Let's read together if you have your Bibles. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. Paul starts, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything from ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He starts out by saying, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation? His critics wanted him to show him the paperwork. It wasn't uncommon for itinerant teachers to go around and have a letter from the place that they came from. If you were a Jewish rabbi, you would have a letter from the temple or from your synagogue. It would say it basically gave you some legitimacy. Well, Paul apparently didn't have the written credentials that people were expecting him to have, his critics. But it didn't help that the fact that Jews were following after Paul in the wake of his church planting and establishing ministry and essentially throwing him under the bus and basically saying that he had no authority, he had no legitimacy, he's kind of a rogue teacher. So they opposed him. They also opposed his message of grace. And by the way, anytime grace is preached, guess what's going to be coming along to oppose it? The letter. It's always going to be a letter. There's always going to be rules. There's always going to be somebody saying, no, 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 you've got to follow this, 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 this. That's what legalists look for. I call them grace crashers. They look for paperwork now, it doesn't matter that you're seeing lives that are transformed and generating the radiance and the majesty of God through a transformed heart. I need your letter. Where's your letter? i got to file that. I've got to have that in the main office. That's what legalism does. It, quelches, it squel- squelches the spirit. It, it, it's a grace killer. And Paul says, you know... I could give you letters all day long, but what you need to see are the living letters of the people around me who have been impacted by the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Look around. There they are. For everyone to know and for everyone to see. That's what he's talking about here. What I lack in documentation, I submit to you in the form of transformed lives. Living letters. And he says something very pastoral in verse 2, if you'll take a look at that. He says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Isn't that cool? You are our letter. I know what they want but I look at you and there is no getting around it. You are living examples of what the, the law could only dream of doing. Paul's saying look at the evidence of God's power and glory. You can reject me but you can't ignore the fruit of the gospel. My message and my calling are of God because only he can produce transformed lives through such an inadequate inept bumbling servant and that is what he says he was as well as me and you. I am totally aware of my ineptness. I'm totally aware of my inadequacy. I know I can't do it. I have to start each day saying, Lord, I know I'm a poser. I just need you to work through me powerfully. Let me step aside and please don't hinder your work because I know I'm a sieve. Such living letters are not the result of great competence. None of the pastors of this church can look out and say, man, it's because of my superior ability to serve you that you are growing they'll be the first to admit, I am weak, I am inept, I can't do this. If you're, if you're married, you understand the challenge of being a partner and, and loving as Christ loved the church. If you're in a leader, if you're in a relationship, you understand that we are weak, we are self-centered, we seek our own will, we are impulsive. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes in and transforms us and breaks us and says, I love you and I am going to show you my glory. Step aside. Let me use you powerfully, but let me in and give me, give me full reign. I got a letter on, uh, uh, I don't go on Facebook very often, but I got a letter from a, a young gal. Well, she was young 30 years ago, but she was in my youth ministry in Youth for Christ, and she wrote this to me. I hadn't heard from her for 30 years. She's now in Guatemala serving the Lord, and just last week it came, and she wrote this to me. She said, Dan, we are loving Guatemala, her and her husband and children, not easy, but has been such a blessing for our family. I owe it all to you and your family for being obedient to the Lord. Can't begin to tell you how many lives have been impacted because of you. Thank you. Now, there's a couple of responses I could have to this. But one of the, reason, one of the things I respond to where I think about when I read something like that is, first of all, glory to God. Secondly, I remember something that one of my professors in grad school said, Howard Hendricks. He always had these quips. I loved him. He said, never begin reading your own press reports. You know what he meant by that? <laughs> because you're going to get people who are going to slam you and you're going to get people who are going to love you. And I look at that and I say, Lord, thank you. If, if, you had, if you used me as a part of this young woman's life, I'm very grateful for that. But I will never forget who through whom you were working and how you worked. Because it was through you, an inept, incompetent, insufficient, inadequate servant, that you were able to demonstrate your great glory. Thank you for that. So don't read your own press reports. It's very, very unhealthy. Let's talk about the letter, the letter, capital T. If you look at chapter 3, let's take a look at verses 7 through 13, reading with me. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if it was tra- and if it was transitory came with and if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the gl- is the glory of that which lasts. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end. Of what was passing away. Moses brought down some impressive pieces of literature from the mountain. Would you agree? Heavy, big rocks inscribed with the finger of God. That's what he's talking about here. That's the letter, the letter, the law that God gave to him. It was a second set because he broke the first ones. But here's his point, Paul's point: the law, the violation about about which brought about condemnation, and death came with glory. The law, the letter which came with a price because no one could keep it perfectly. It came with condemnation and ultimately death, but it still came with glory. It came with miraculous signs and wonders. It disrupted reality. It was like opening up a portal to the, the, the truth and the, the majesty and the beauty who, who God is. But that portal closed. But the glory that accompanied the giving of the law through thunder, fire, Scorching, the mountain, earthquake, trumpet blasts, and the moglo. Remember the moglo? It was temporary. It was transitory. Now I spare no expense when it comes to props. Those of you that are taking notes, glow stick. And these are now called mo sticks. All right? From now on, you ever get a glow stick, it's a mo stick. Moses. It's short for Moses. I'm not sure if you're tracking with me. Mo stick. <laughs> all right? Some of you are looking at me like, what's he doing? All right? Now, this is exactly what Paul is talking about, okay? Can't see it because it's too bright. All right? There it is. That's Moses. How long is that going to glow? Well, according to the package, 12 hours. So come back tomorrow at this time and take a look at it. We'll just leave it right here for you. It's going to be. It's going to dim. It's going to go out. This is the glow. This is what he's talking about. It was temporary. Moses' face glowed after he received the second set of tablets. Up on the mountain again for 40 days, he comes back down, and he's, you know. It wasn't Charlton Heston, by the way. I just used him. As a. So what did Moses do? And we don't get this in Exodus 34. In the, actual, in the original context of this, we get a supplemental insight into what happened as to why Moses put on the veil in, in 2 Corinthians 3. So according to this passage, why did Moses put a veil over his face when he came down glowing? Why did he do that? Well, he didn't want the Jews to see the glow fade, transitory glory. Um, I don't blame him. I mean, think about it. When you come down from the mountain with two rocks inscribed by the finger of God and your face glowing, people don't question your leadership. (laughs) You you talk about a letter. Legitimacy. Hello? Hello? Man's glowing. It wasn't radiation. It was truly being in the presence of God. People are going to follow you until the glow goes away. But he didn't want them to see that. So Paul says he took, put the veil over his face. The fading glory that came with the delivery of the law through Moses pointed to the temporary nature of the Old Covenant and to its fulfillment through a once and for all perfect sacrificial lamb. The, The Old Testament continually pointed forward here's what's coming. There is hope. The law kills, the law condemns. It'll tell you how you have failed to live a righteous life. But there is one who is coming who will fulfill the law and the prophets. And Paul calls the giving of the law through Moses the ministry of death. Why? Because the death that the law could only condemn. That's it. It tells us where we fell short. It didn't impart life. It offered no power to actually produce obedience. Take a look at this next slide. Can you see it? you see what that says on the fence? It says, keep gate closed. Now, (laughs) to me, that's one of the best graphics I've ever seen of the law. You know, does that gate have any power to keep you from going beyond it? Of course not. It's like a sign that says, keep off the grass. The sign has no power to, to, to keep you off the grass. It simply tells you what's out of bounds. But there's no power in it. It doesn't give life. It can only condemn you. If you violate whatever that is it's saying, it can only say you're guilty, and therefore the punishment will follow. Paul says that the, spirit, the ministry of the Spirit is through inadequate vessels, it imparts life, not death. The ministry of condemnation, which was the law, versus the ministry of righteousness, the fading glory versus the surpassing glory of the new covenant. And the other problem with the, covenant, the old covenant was the law only attempted to bring about obedience from the outside in. The new covenant comes from the inside out. Jesus was indicting those who were religious by saying, you know, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, you look really good on the outside, you paint the outside of the tomb, but guess what? Inside you are dead. You are unclean. There has to be a change within our hearts. Transformation cannot come by imposing laws on us. I don't care what your handbook says in college I don't care what your handbook says in high school or or your business it has no power to bring about obedience it is just simply defining the terms of what it means to live within a community and to honor that community and the good news is this that Jeremiah and Ezekiel you remember what they said that God is going to replace your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh it's going to be pliable it's not going to be this dead letter It's going to be something that's living and active because it's going to be the word of God, the law of God, literally inscribed inside of you. It is a consciousness that God has given to every one of us. And those who have turned on that light, our soul is now alive in Christ. We now have an understanding that that is not because we simply want to be good people. Christianity is not being a nicer version of your old self. It is being transformed by a change of mind that brings about obedience out of joy and out of kindness and out of gratitude. The new covenant is one that never needs batteries, that will never die. The power of God expresses itself through us. God's living temples, which his spirit resides in. The glory of God displayed through transformed hearts will never dim. In fact, according to this chapter, we are being transformed from one level of glory to the next. Let's take a look at that. Verse 14 through the end of the chapter, if you follow me, please. Verse 14. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. For even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is Spirit." You can be very thankful that what Paul says is so true in verse 13. We are not like Moses. How many times have you wished that you could have a Moses-like transforming experience? Somebody shows up. Somebody, there's an epiphany, a revelation of some kind. You see a burning bush. You see any kind of bush that's out of the ordinary. You see something that is um, beyond explanation. I'm not talking about changed change lives. I'm talking about a physical phenomenon. We are not like Moses. There is no longer a need to throw a veil over that which is fading. This is what Moses had right here. As an, a, a portal into, into the true reality of, of the spiritual realm, but it closed. Whenever there was a miracle of water coming out of the rock, whatever it was, it closed. People, oh, God is great. God is, we shall obey him. We will follow him. What happened the next day? Did it stick? No. It didn't, because the glory was temporary, and and Moses knew it. And Paul said that since we have the glory of God contained in us, not the moglo, it's in here, we are very bold, he says in verse 12. Not just confident, we are bold. We have nothing inhibiting us from being very um, overt, very clear, very bold about our ministry. So instead of glowing moes, the power and majesty of God is now expressed through what he calls living letters, which is transformed saints. Us. Transform lives. Instead of waiting for another word of revelation, we now walk according to the word made flesh and living among us. St. Francis of Assisi is credited with this quote. He said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I thought, you know, we have to live with both. We have to be willing to be clear in communicating what the gospel is, but we also need to understand that some people will never hear us speak unless they see that there is something that works. Especially this generation that's coming behind us, they determine whether it's true or not based on whether it works. My generation, just the opposite. If it's tr- it works, because it's true. This generation, very different. They believe the truth is based on that which is um, functional. It makes a difference. So if this works for you, then it's true for you. If this Belief system works for you, then it's true for you. That's not how truth works. It's not relative. This passage is about the portability, if you will, of the presence and the glory of God in human containers. We don't have to carry around the gold box with poles stuck through it that we stick inside the temple and we visit once a year by a priest who's scared out of his mind because he could get killed if he does it the wrong way. One year visitation for this gold box where the presence of God dwells on the top of the lid. We don't have to do that anymore. The veil of the temple ripped. We now have access to God. We are now able to be his vessels. We don't put it behind a veil now. He, he sticks his presence in us, which is so cool. We are not like Moses. Thank God for that. He could only imagine what was to come. It's God in us. We are now living houses or containers of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse six, verses 6 through 8 says this clearly. This is the next chapter, by the way. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. What will God do? What does he want to do or willing to do in my life in order to break me down to the point where I accept the fact that I am simply nothing more than a jar of clay? And that is not putting myself down. That is simply understanding that I is not who I am, it's who I contain that is, makes all the difference until I'm a leaky pot or a leaky pitcher. That's what it's all about. But God has some work to do, doesn't he? Because <laughs> I'm so stubborn. I said, Lord, just get me out of the way, please, so you can display who you are, your power. And under the new covenant, we have, we have what far surpasses anything Moses and the Hebrews could have even imagined, including Moses, Solomon, and Elijah. As much as I love to have some touched by an angel moment, do you ever have one of those, by the way? Remember that TV show? Things look like they're getting darker, and all of a sudden somebody shows up and their head glows, and they tell you something really good, or that God has been with you, don't worry, don't be upset. That's a glow-mo. That's one of those times that comes, but it doesn't sustain It really doesn't. I'd love to have a glow-mo. I'd like to have somebody come along and and say, dude, face. Um, Maybe some of you, some of you are going to come up to me and go, I've had glow-mos. Well, I'm glad for you, but I can't depend on that. And I don't need to because I'm not like Moses. I'm a living letter. I don't carry those two big rocks around with me with my face glowing. I got the power and presence of God, which is beyond anything we can imagine in me. So do you. And again miracles did little to transform. All we do is we look at the we go oh look at the stick ooh it glows ooh That's what miracles do ooh. it doesn't permanently change us. Well, one of the most common objections to the Christian life, one of the reasons top reasons why people reject Christianity. Anybody want to take a guess? Yes. Christians. I've heard it is. Christians we're the impediment. So there's something wrong between what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3 and what is happening in our culture. Some of you may have read one of Barna's books, on christian The subtitle is What a Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And one of the quotes in that book, which he pretty much sums up the book with this, one of the most important findings of our research for this book among young outsiders, 84% say they personally know at least one committed Christian Yet just 15 percent thought the lifestyles of those Christ followers were significantly different from the norm. Ouch. What does that say about us? Us, all of us. How are we doing with that transformed life? How are we doing with being a living letter? It's not a letter anybody wants to read. Seems like Mahatma Gandhi once said, "I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. You are so unlike your Christ." Wow. And you know, we got to hear that sometimes because we have stepped so far away from what it means to truly understand the transforming power of the Spirit. The ministry of the new covenant is living. It's not this. It's, not, it's permanent. That's something we go ooh and ah over. Every day, God is continually making us more like himself. We are going from one level of glory to the next. It's expressed through increased glory. But like Paul, we confront daily the obstacles of transformation, do we not? Because this would be so easy to talk about, wouldn't it, if we didn't have the flesh, Satan. The obstacles that tempt us every single day, the lies that we believe, we are constantly being bombarded with, and we are living in a war. As Paul says in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 4.4, he says, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds, there's that veil thing again, of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You know, the challenge of being a a witness, being a living letter is even though we may be displaying the glory of God, the enemy is there throwing a wet blanket over us. He doesn't want them not over us, but over the person who sees us. He doesn't want us to see or them to see the glory of God revealed through us because we have stared deeply into the face of Christ. So we are in a war. And as I close I just want to say I don't have a specific application for this message, because this is one that's a little bit more difficult to land on. I think it's very personal for everyone here. My personal application is that the Lord will remove whatever that veil is in my heart that prevents others from seeing him. Uh, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be like Moses who puts, who put a veil. I don't want to see that glory fade. I want God's glory to be expressed through me unencumbered. And so that's my prayer. And uh, I've prayed that God will do that with you too is how does he want to apply this message? But I hope you understand that the way God expresses himself now is so much superior to the Old Covenant. We are now living letters. So go out and live. Go out and be a testimony of God's power and his majesty and his glory. And, uh, yeah, let's pray together. Lord, forgive me for my continued attraction to living life according to the letter rather than according to your living spirit whom you placed with me. I am insufficient and I'm inadequate to express who you are. And frankly, I'm frustrated by others who fail to do the same. You've removed the veil which once blinded me from the truth of who you are and you've set my heart free to live life with you. I invite you once more to express the the brilliance of your glory through me, this clay pot, so that others will see how great you are and desire nothing but you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be with you guys again. Have a great day. You're dismissed.